0: You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Uh, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 and put your, put your hand there. <laughs> All right, uh, We're continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark this evening and we're going to be supplementing our reading with Mark with a second reading from the Gospel of Matthew and uh we're going to be looking at christ's being tempted by satan in the wilderness so that's mark 1 and matthew 4. Um, i i personally think that like his baptism the the temptations of christ are something that uh, a lot of people uh, at least today i would imagine haven't given a whole lot of thought to again it's something that we accept has happened to jesus we we know he was tempted but maybe we've not thought through like the theological implications of that uh, or how significant That Christ's temptations are are, or were Uh, but let me submit to you that up to this point in human history there had never been such a battle on the earth as when Christ was tempted by the devil in the temptation of Christ we see the forces of darkness waging an all-out assault on the Son of God we see Satan himself coming at Jesus Christ with everything he has in his demonic arsenal Right, there's a battle waged in the wilderness between God and the devil. And our salvation hung in the balance. Not that God could ever be thwarted, but you see what I mean. Immediately, our salvation hung in the balance. I know that I'm getting right into it. I'm getting real serious. I want you guys to feel the weight of this passage that we're about to read. Is Jesus going to be the Savior? Remember, we're still in the introduction of Mark. Mark is introducing us to who Jesus is. Is he going to be the savior? Is he fit to redeem sinners, or is Jesus Christ going to fall to Satan's temptations like Adam did in the Garden of Eden? That should be on our mind as we read this. Will he be the fit savior? Now, obviously, we know that Christ was indeed victorious of the devil, right? Over the devil, how, how could he not be? He's the Son of God in the flesh, right? The Lord Jesus Christ never sinned. He never even had the desire to sin. He was, is, and Forevermore will be the spotless Lamb of God. But he was tempted so that he might display for us his power over the devil and show how fit he is to save us from the power of sin and Satan. He was tempted so that he could show us that he indeed is the true and greater Adam, as we sing uh, in, in in a hymn. That he could prove that he is the true Son of God who never disobeys his Father. He was tempted so that his perfect righteousness in the face of temptation, could be given to us. He was tempted so that he could be our sympathetic high priest who has been tempted and tried in every way that we are, yet without sin. And he was tempted so that we could have an example for how we are to fight back in our temptations to sin because Christ was truly tempted as a man. And he fought back as a man. So there's a ton that we can learn from the temptation of Jesus. So we're going to walk through, what we're going to do is we're going to walk through both of these narrative accounts in Mark 1 and Matthew 4 and see what exactly was going on as Christ was tempted. And in doing that, we're going to see some aspects of exactly what it was underneath the surface that Satan was tempting Jesus to do. And also in doing so, I hope that we can see how Satan tempts us often in the same ways. And then after all that, I want us to answer four questions. One, what does this passage teach us about the devil? Yeah, right, how often is that an application point? Right, what does this passage teach us about the devil? Two, what does this teach us about how we're to fight temptation to sin, how we are to fight temptation? Three, what does this teach us about Christ? And fourth, what good news is proclaimed to us in Jesus' victory over the devil? So that's where we're going this evening. Simply, we're just going to walk through these narratives, see how Jesus was tempted, and then answer those four questions. And there's a lot here for us, Uh, there's a lot of encouragement here, and a lot here for us to to be wise, to make us wise so that we wouldn't be fooled by the devices and tricks of the devil. So with that said, let's go ahead and read Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Holy God, we ask that you would speak to us now through your word. Teach us, Lord, and make our hearts teachable. Please open our hearts to receive the truth of your infallible, inerrant, and inspired word. Show us this evening how Christ is the Savior that we need, and give us hearts that rejoice in his victory. Help us to see how we ought to fight against the temptations of the devil, as we see how your Son, the perfect man, conquered him. Help us to see that his victory is our victory. God, please glorify yourself as the word is preached. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so a little bit of context for this. You guys will remember two weeks ago, we studied Jesus' baptism. Right, so in context here, Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist. Um, And in so, he's been publicly declared to be the Christ He's been publicly declared to be the Son of God, and this declaration came from none other than God Himself. Right? We've just seen the great Trinitarian witness. Right? God the Father speaks from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Son of God is baptized, and the Holy Spirit of God descends upon the Son of God and rests on Him like a dove. Right? This is a glorious scene, beautiful to behold. God has just affirmed, He is the Christ, He is my Son. And after this, Mark says, immediately Christ was driven into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And this strikes us as a little bit strange, doesn't it? Right? Like we we might expect there to be some kind of reception or celebration for the Lord Jesus after such a beautiful public announcement of who he is. Right? But no, we see Christ immediately driven out into the wilderness by the Spirit of God. As soon as he was empowered for his work of ministry and his humanity, he begins his ministry. He's immediately driven out into the wilderness to be tested by God as he is tempted by the devil. Now, Mark tells us that, again, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Now, I want to be clear about something. This doesn't mean that Jesus didn't go willingly, right, or that the Holy Spirit forced him to go. Jesus Christ did all of his actions voluntarily. Perished the thought that the Son of God did not come to be the Savior willingly. right? that's nonsense. He did everything voluntarily. He was no prisoner. He was always willing to do whatever it was that his Father desired of him. Regardless of what it cost. Regardless of how difficult it was going to be. But what this is telling us, and that the Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness, is that Jesus is going to be tempted by the devil. His going out into the wilderness for that is by divine appointment. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit... Drives him into the wilderness. This is divine appointment. This is no chance event, right? This is not, well, as it happened, Jesus went out to the wilderness and the devil just so happened to be there and ah, he went ahead and tempted him, right? That's not how this went down. This was part of the plan of God for Christ that he would go and suffer temptation in the wilderness so that he could defeat Satan and display his power and authority over him and so that we might be given the righteousness of Christ in his victory over Satan's temptations, right, this is beautiful, beautiful, so this is by divine appointment, and everything that Jesus Christ did was in accord with the will of God, he says over and over, I've not come to do my own will, but I've come to do the will of him who sent me, he says my food and drink is to do the will of my father, right, he lived to do whatever it was that would please God, but Christ is going out to be tempted by the devil, and and this is interesting to us, uh, because if Christ was going to be tempted to sin, it was going to have to come from someone else. Let's do a little bit of Christology here, right? The doctrines of Christ. If Jesus is going to be tempted, it's going to have to come from outside of himself. Why? Because he has no sin nature. Right? He was placed in the womb by the Holy Spirit so that he would be born sinless, just like the first Adam was created sinless. Right? You and I come from sinners. You and I are born in Adam. We are born sinners. Christ was not born in Adam. Therefore, Christ had no sin nature. He has no inherent inclination to sin. Therefore, if the thought of committing a sin is even going to cross his holy mind, it's going to have to be because someone else suggests it to him. Right? This is how holy our Savior is. Someone else has to suggest sin to him. Unlike you and I, who James tells us in the book of James, that we're drawn away by our own desires into sin. Jesus has to have someone else say, hey, did you know you could sin right now? He has no inclination to sin. So the devil himself, the great tempter and ruiner of mankind, is going to be the one who suggests sin to the Lord Jesus. I also want to make a quick note here. In his humanity, Jesus really could be tempted. He really could be tempted. The Bible tells us that God cannot be tempted. His divine nature could not be tempted. But the human nature of Jesus is just as human as we are. Just as human as Adam was. He could truly be tempted in regards to his human nature. What I'm getting at is this temptation was real. I don't want us to, uh, to, to downplay the reality of Christ's temptation because he was also, or he is also God. I don't want us to downplay that. Christ's temptation is real. This really was a battle for the Lord Jesus. He did not use his divine privileges as God in this temptation. He didn't. He was tempted as a man just like we are but was without sin which should stagger our minds that he would never sin. Now there's a a mystery as to exactly how Jesus would have experienced this temptation because he has no inclination to sin and is the holy God. There's a lot of debate theologically about this but Jesus was truly tempted. The scriptures tell us so and we'll leave that there for now. Uh, All the... Could Christ have sinned his two natures? How does that work? That's another sermon for another time. But we're going to leave it sufficient right now. The scriptures say he was truly tempted as we are. And we're going to leave that there for tonight. He was truly tempted and tempted by none other than Satan himself. Now, in every account, every account, all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's emphasized that Jesus went out to the wilderness. And there's something significant for us to see in this. Jesus was already in the wilderness, right? He was already in the wilderness. That's where John was preaching. That's where John was baptizing. He's already out there at the River Jordan. But the Holy Spirit compels Jesus to go out even further in the wilderness, to an even more desolate place. This is the Judean wilderness, or the Judean desert. right? And I've never been. right? Uh, I've, I've never been outside the country. Uh, but every historian that I've read, every theologian I've read, every pastor that I've heard preach on this, all affirm that this place is just a nightmare. Right, the Judean wilderness is a horrible place to be. It's one of the most miserable pieces of real estate on earth. It's basically uninhabitable. Right? It's not a place fit for human beings to dwell, at least long term. There's no food out there. Right? There's no people. This is a place of isolation. It's a place of intense heat. It's a place of death. In verse 13 of, of Mark's gospel, chapter one, verse 13, Mark makes the comment that there were wild animals there. Right? And this isn't like animals from Snow White, right? It's not like that. Uh, these are wild beasts, right? They're not friendly animals. They're dangerous to anyone who might be out there, and Christ is surrounded by wild animals in this isolated Judean wilderness where there is no food and it's completely inhospitable to human beings. This wilderness is an anti-Eden. It's an anti-Eden environment. I think we're supposed to see that if you understand the biblical themes. It's an anti-Eden. This place is the polar opposite of the Garden of Eden where Adam was tempted by Satan. Polar opposite. Consider in Adam's temptation where he lived. In Eden, everything was perfect. There's lush vegetation all around. There's trees good for food everywhere you looked. Adam had the companionship of his wife Eve. The animals were all submissive to Adam. He lived there in peace. And it was in this perfect paradise garden that the devil came to Adam and even and tempted them. It was in this beautiful, easy, perfect setting that the first Adam so easily succumbed to the temptations of the devil and fell and plunged mankind into sin. It was in the Garden of Eden that the covenant representative, Adam, our covenant representative of all mankind, fell into sin it was in the garden that through his fall the covenant of works was broken where God had said obey me and live disobey me and die and the one law I give you is don't eat from that tree it's there that he fell to the temptations of the devil broke covenant with God and plunged us all into sin because as Paul says in Romans 5 we sinned in Adam and now We see the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, the representative of the people of God, God's elect, the one who has come to keep the covenant of works on our behalf, unlike Adam, going into this anti-Eden to be tempted by the devil. The Lord Jesus enters this wilderness completely isolated. Adam had the companionship of his wife. Christ goes completely isolated hungry in the midst of a 40-day fast, surrounded by ravenous wild animals and there is tempted. There's a theologian I was reading said that since Christ came to reverse what Adam did, he goes to the opposite of Eden to fix what Adam had messed up. The question that would come to our minds if we didn't yet know the outcome of this narrative would be will Jesus fall? Will Jesus do what the first Adam did? Will Jesus do what our first father did? Will he really be the redeemer? Will he really be the Christ? Or will the second Adam be ruined like the first one was? Our salvation hung in the balance of whether or not Christ would succumb to Satan's temptations. If Christ would have fallen into sin, then he would no longer be a fit savior for anybody. If he fell into sin, he could no longer be the Messiah. He could no longer offer himself as the sacrifice for sinners because he himself would have become a sinner and would have died for his own sins. This tempting was an attempt by Satan to ruin God's plan of redemption. But as we said before, God had other things in mind for this. But you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. But again, our salvation is at stake in whether or not the second Adam Jesus will triumph or fail. But praise be to God, we already know how the story ends. We know that Christ did not fail. Unlike the first Adam, the Lord Jesus was victorious over the devil, never gave in to his temptation ever. Christ remains steadfast in his sinlessness and his perfect obedience to God the Father, and he comes out of this temptation as the conquering king, who's the fit representative for the people of God, the perfect and true savior, the fit sacrifice for sinners. Christ faced all of the power of Satan and won. So I know I'm giving away the ending before we really get there, but this is great reason for us to worship Christ and rejoice. He's the true Adam. He's the fit savior of the people of God. But now let's consider the three temptations that Matthew records for us. All right? Go ahead and flip over to Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 through 11. And before we get into these, I want you guys to know, these temptations are multifaceted. I believe that there's multiple levels and layers to each temptation, because Satan is incredibly crafty. Uh, and I'm not trying to go into every single facet of each temptation. Um, but I just want to pull out one aspect of each. Um, and I also want to make a note here real quick. Uh, Jesus wasn't only tempted these three times. Sometimes I think we think that, and we're wrong. If you reread what Mark says in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1, he says that Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Right? So he's tempted the whole time that he's out there. But what we have recorded for us here in Matthew and in Luke are, are, the, are three major temptations that Satan hits Jesus with at the end of 40 days when Christ was at his weakest point physically. Right? He's been fasting in the desert for 40 days with no food, just water. He's been in the desert, very weak. Verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Right off the bat, so we've, we've, we've talked about the dissimilarities between Adam's temptation and Christ's. Adam's in Eden, where everything's perfect, Christ is out in this anti Eden environment, the Judean wilderness. But here we see something similar between the two of them, right? One huge similarity between how Adam and Eve were tempted and how Jesus is being tempted. Satan came to Adam and Eve in the garden and said, Has God said? Did he he say that you'll die if you eat from that tree? You won't die, right? That's what Satan does to Adam and Eve. He says, Has God really said this? Satan comes to Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden questioning the word of God. And in the same way here, Satan comes to Jesus and says, Are you really the Son of God? And if you say, where do you get that from? He says, If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into loaves of bread. He's calling into question whether or not Jesus actually is the Son of God. Right? But we know that at Christ's baptism, God the Father publicly spoke and declared Jesus is his beloved Son in whom he is well pleased. So through all of Satan's temptations, just a, a, a quick thing here, what he does is he tries to cast doubt upon the veracity of the Word of God. Or he tries to twist it some way. Or he just flat out tries to get Jesus to violate it explicitly. Satan, in summation, is trying to get Jesus to abandon the Scriptures. He's trying to get Satan, or Jesus to abandon the Word of God. And this is the devil's big trick, right? This is what he does to all of us day in and day out, right? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. In the words of the rapper Shylin, if the thing is a hit, you ain't got to remix it, right? It's good. It's a good temptation. Satan doesn't need to change this. It's not broken. That's how he tempts us most often. Has God really said? Did he really say you can't do that? Does the Bible really say this cardinal doctrine is true? One of Satan's biggest goals is to get us to abandon the scriptures and go out and do as we see fit. But this first temptation seems innocent enough, doesn't it? Right, Turn these stones into bread. This would have been an attractive idea to Jesus and his humanity. right? Matthew, uh, I think it's uh, chapter 4, verse 2, has one of the greatest understatements in the whole Bible. And after 40 days, he was hungry. <laughs> yes, very much so. He hadn't eaten for 40 days. right? He'd been fasting, and it's not a sin for Jesus to be hungry. Now, he's human. He has all human weaknesses like we do, but without sin. It's not, it's not a sin for Jesus to desire food, but there's something sinister beneath the surface in Satan tempting Jesus to make stones into loaves of bread. What Satan is doing is basically going to Jesus and saying, you say that you're the son of God, but it doesn't look like it. You've not eaten for 40 days. We both know that if you go much longer than this, you could die. It appears to me that God has abandoned you in this wilderness. So you should make it easier on yourself. Abandon God's command to fast and make yourself some food. It does not seem as if he is going to come to your aid and you could die. What Satan's doing here is he's trying to get Jesus to doubt the goodness and kindness of God. He's trying to get Jesus to doubt that God will see him through the trial and the wilderness and provide food for him at the proper time that God has chosen. Satan's trying to get Jesus to doubt that God cares for him. He's trying to get Jesus to doubt that God will make a way for him to continue on and survive. Satan does the same exact thing to us. He comes to us when we're weak, he comes to Christ 40 days into a fast, he comes to us when we're weak. When we have some kind of desire, often a good one, that God is not giving to us in that moment or meeting for us right then, and the serpent whispers into our ear, God doesn't care about you. God, please send me a spouse. He's not sending you one. How old are you and you have no spouse? He doesn't care about you. God, please give me a child. He doesn't care about you. He's not giving you one. How long have you tried? Satan comes and whispers in our ear that God doesn't care. He says, abandon him. Take matters into your own hands somehow. God's not going to give you what you need. Whatever your situation is, God's not going to help you through it. He's a stingy God. He's not going to provide for you. Forsake him. Gratify yourself. Don't trust him. This is what the serpent whispers in our ear. But how does our Lord respond? Verse 4, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, real quick, liberal Christians, and I use that word lightly, liberal Christians hate this, right? Jesus immediately answers the devil with, it is written. This is Jesus, how he responds to temptation. It is written, which is a Jewish way of saying the scriptures say, it is written in the scriptures. right? Liberal Christians read this and they think, oh no, Jesus sounds like one of those backwoods fundamentalists. <laughs> one of those crazy people who's always saying, the Bible says. Right? And they, We're in good company when the world mocks us for holding fast to the word of God. Just real quick, wanted to point that out. Jesus immediately appeals to the scriptures for his support in the midst of temptation. In this quote, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And if you go back and read Deuteronomy 8, in context, the Israelites are being reminded of how, even though that they were out in the wilderness with no bread, God still provided food for them. That's the context of this. He gave them manna to eat so they wouldn't starve. So they had no bread, but God provided something for them to sustain them. In Jesus quoting this, he's saying, I don't need to go outside the will of my God and break this fast. My Father has not yet released me from this fast. I've come to do His will, and He will provide food for me somehow. He's not going to abandon me to die in this wilderness. God will provide. I don't need to take matters into my own hands. He's going to do something. I don't know what it is, but I'm not going to forsake His commandments. He will make a way for me. He does indeed For me, so what Jesus does is he stands upon the promise of God the promise that God's going to do what God wants to do, and it's in a way that God sees fit in the time that God sees fit, and that He will be faithful to Christ in it. Jesus trusts God to do what's right, that's very simple, but take that to heart, please. He trusts God to do what is right in this situation. What he does is he believes and trusts what the word of God says. And that's how he fights off the first temptation. But Satan's far from finished. The second temptation, chapter or verse 5 and 6. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Here, Satan takes Jesus to the highest point of the temple, the pinnacle. It's a, a place in the temple that overlooks a 450-foot drop into the Kidron Valley below it. And he says, this is, this is very ironic, it shows you the craftiness of the devil. Jesus just says, I believe what the word of God says. I trust my father. And it's as if Satan comes to him here and says, you say you trust God and believe his word? Prove it. Prove it. After all, his word says that he'll send angels to keep you from hitting your foot on a rock. Prove that you trust him. Jump. Let's see if he'll prove that you're his son. Let's see if God will prove what his word says. Satan here quotes from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. He's not pulling this out of thin air. He's quoting the scriptures. He knows the Bible better than me and you, just real quick. The devil knows the scriptures. He quotes Psalm 91, 11 and 12, but he he twists them. When he quotes them right he quotes them accurately right but what he does is he leaves out an important verse verse 10 quotes 11 and 12 leaves out verse 10 that says no evil shall be allowed to befall you or come upon you this psalm does not say that a person should jump off of cliffs so god can miraculously rescue him Psalm 91 says, is saying to us that as we live our lives wisely and striving for righteousness, that God will take care of us if evil comes upon us while we're in the line of duty. Psalm 91 is not telling us to be foolish and see if God will save our lives. Rather, that God will... That r- rather, the psalm is encouraging us to trust God's providence that he will keep us even when bad things happen to us, when things befall us. But here Satan is tempting Jesus to do what? To presume upon God's grace is what the devil is tempting him to do. He's trying to get Jesus to test God and see if God will really do what he says. He's saying, go ahead, do this foolish thing. And jump. If God's telling the truth, you'll live. And does the devil not do this exact same thing to us? She gets just as mad about it as I do. (laughs) Tell him, Josie. Satan does the same thing with us. He tries to get us to presume upon the grace of God. Tell me, especially those of us who understand the doctrines of grace, right that we're saved and we're not going to lose our salvation. Tell me if you've never heard the serpent whisper this one into your ear. God says that Christ has paid for all of your sins. You've been chosen by God and predestined. You're eternally secure in Christ. So go ahead and be a fool and sin a little. It's not like you're going to go to hell for it. Go ahead and watch that show that you shouldn't. Go ahead and be alone with that person, even though it's foolish. Go ahead and indulge yourself in a little sin. God won't not forgive you, will he? I think all of us have heard that one. Go ahead and indulge yourself. Aren't you a Calvinist? Blasphemy. Or this. God tells us, That he cares for his people, right? Consider the sparrow. He'll provide for their needs. So go ahead and buy that car that you don't need and that you can't afford. God will provide for you, right? Doesn't his word say he will? Is that not a vile thought? Is that not a disgusting thought that we would use God's promises of forgiveness, mercy, grace, and providence as a license to test him and live foolishly and indulge ourselves in sin? That's what the serpent tempts us to do. Presuming upon God's grace is a horrible sin. It's a mockery of the word of God. It's a mockery of God's good nature. And it's a mockery of his benevolence and promises to his people. But Christ's response to this temptation, verse 7, And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus quotes the word right back at the devil. It's like Jesus is saying, you quoted the psalm right, right? Like, you weren't wrong, you weren't, like, not accurate in what you said, but you're also trying to pit Scripture against Scripture. You're telling me to do this, but I know that if I do that, I would be presuming upon God's grace and putting God to the test. And I know that Deuteronomy 6, I believe it is, Says Not that Jesus would say I believe it is. He knew where it was. I'm I'm fuzzy right now. (laughs) But Jesus says, I know, Deuteronomy says, I shall not put the Lord my God to the test. And scripture can't contradict itself. One of us is wrong and I'm God. (laughs) So no, I will not jump. My father has nothing to prove to me. He'll care for me if something befalls me, but I will not put him to the test and presume upon his grace and kindness. Now we come to the third and final temptation. Verse eight, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now this is the most blatant and heinous of all the temptations. Satan here shows Jesus, I think the Gospel of Luke tells us it's a vision. He takes Jesus upon a mountain, shows him a vision of all the kingdoms of the world. And he pretends that he has the authority and the power over the kingdoms to give them to Jesus. Quick aside here, the devil is a liar. He has no such authority to give anyone anything, or take anything from anyone, unless God allows him. Remember the beginning to the book of Job Satan has to go to Yahweh and say, may I? Or he can't do anything. The devil is on a leash held by God Almighty. He can't do anything. He has no authority over anything. He's lying to Jesus. I'll give you all this stuff. I'll give you everything. It's all in my authority. It's all in my power. I think here Satan is saying, we both know already that the Father has promised you dominion over the whole world. That's prophesied in the Old Testament. He's promised that nations will come to you and bow to you and worship you. But he's also said that your glory will have to come by a cross. That your glory will come after suffering. If you'll just bow to me, just genuflect, bend your knee just a little. It's only you and me out here in this wilderness. No one's going to know but us. Worship me for just a moment and I'll give you everything. Everything. And you'll not have to suffer. Let me make this easy on you. Let me give you what it is that you want. Satan's tempting Jesus to have a crown without a cross. He's tempting Jesus to take the easy way out. To avoid the suffering of crucifixion. To avoid taking on the wrath of God on the cross. He's tempting Jesus to make things easy on himself. I don't know if you... This is another thing, just real quick... All of the temptations of Jesus, Satan is saying in some way, shape, or form, don't suffer. Getting followers is going to be hard. If you jump off the temple, the, the temple and you fly, you have followers like that. You're hungry. Go ahead and feed yourself. Bow down to me and I'll give you everything in the world. Don't suffer. That's what he's tempting Jesus with. He's tempting Jesus to make things easy on himself and even if it's God's will for him to suffer, to refuse to do it. He's tempting Jesus to have glory with no sacrifice, to ignore the plan of God, to abandon the worship of God in order to get something. He's tempting Jesus to abandon God and his ways and follow after Satan and his ways instead. And if Christ would have done this, he would have become an idolater. And again, Satan does this to us. He promises us everything, doesn't he? He promises us everything. He promises to make us happy through sin. That's why we sin. What well, I mean, Obviously it's in our nature, but we think it's going to make us happy. That's why we do the things we do. It's our greatest desire is what wins. I think this sin is going to make me happy. Satan promises us the world. He promises us happiness through sin. But he has no power to give us those things. All he can do is tempt us to sin. And sin after a season leads to misery, condemnation, death, and hell. What the devil does is he shows us the bait, whatever it is that we desire. And he hides the hook in the bait. He tempts us to take the easy way out. And instead of living righteously and walking the hard road with God, he tempts us to follow after him and go into sin. He tempts us to satisfy our desires and forsake our only true hope, which is the living God. Jesus then responds to the devil in verse 10. Jesus says to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. The thought of forsaking God and going After the devil is repulsive to Jesus. He can take no more. He will take no more. And he says, get out. Be gone. He's had enough of these blasphemous temptations and insulting of the word of God. And then for the third time, the Lord Jesus appeals to the Bible. He says, I will not worship you ever. The Bible says that we are to worship God and God alone. I refuse to commit idolatry. You're not worthy of my worship. I would rather endure a cross and do the will of God. I would rather suffer for righteousness than follow you, no matter what you might offer me, because it profits me nothing to gain the world but disobey my father and lose my soul. Get out of here. Verse 11, then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Luke's account of this event in Luke chapter 4 says that Satan departed from him until an opportune time. Right, he left, but he wasn't done. Right, the time of the wilderness, temptation was over, but this would not be the last time that Christ would be tempted. The Lord Jesus would be tempted constantly throughout his life, right? Satan used Peter to try and convince Jesus to not go to Jerusalem. Because Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me. And Peter says, it will not be that way. And what does Jesus say? Get thee behind me, Satan. This wouldn't be the first, last time that Jesus is tempted. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the Lord Jesus would be tempted again, I'm sure. He doesn't want to die in his humanity. And on the cross, I'm sure the greatest temptation came whenever the crowds mocked him and says, if you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. Does that not sound like how the devil just tempted him? His temptations weren't over. Christ's life was one of constant temptation from the devil. But over and over and over again, the Lord Jesus is victorious over the evil one. But after this time of testing and temptation, after Christ has resisted, Satan flees. James chapter 4 verse 7 reminds us, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Is that not what Jesus had done? He submitted himself to the authority of the word of God. says, I will only worship my father. I love him. I will not forsake him. James says, submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And in his humanity, Jesus did just that. And Satan runs away, beaten and humiliated by the Son of God. And after this, the angels came and ministered to him. No doubt, they brought him food to replenish his strength. And I would imagine they rejoiced over him and worshiped and praised him for such a glorious defeat of the serpent. The Lord Jesus had been tempted just as we are, but was found faithful at every single point. Beautiful, beautiful account. So let's quickly answer those four questions we posed at the beginning of the sermon. First, what does this teach us about the devil? Satan is relentless absolutely relentless he tempts us and we're fools if we ignore how relentless that he is if he can't get us with one temptation he'll bring something else is that not what we see with jesus he appeals to one thing and that doesn't work so he appeals to another and he knows how to attack us when we're weak he knows when to come He comes seeking to tempt when we're at our worst. We see that in the first temptation. Jesus is hungry and he says, feed yourself. He knows when to come. And that should tell us we should always be on guard, especially when we know in that moment that we're weak. The devil strives, the second thing, the devil strives to make us disbelieve God's word at every point. He's always calling us to question what God has clearly stated in the word. He twists the scriptures. And lastly, about the devil, his ultimate goal is to get us to forsake God and go after him. That's what we see in the third temptation. That's his ultimate goal. Listen to me. Every temptation to sin is an invitation by Satan for you to forsake the true God and follow Satan instead. Every temptation to sin is an invitation for you to abandon God and follow the devil. I want you to think about that the next time you're tempted to sin. I don't care how big or how small the temptation is. Satan is trying to get you, in a sense, to fall down before him and worship and abandon your God. No matter what the temptation is, don't be fooled. He's trying to get you to forsake the living God. Second, what does this teach us about how we're to fight temptations to sin? If you've ever heard anyone preach this, you already know the answer. Jesus fought back with the scriptures at every single point. He's always quoting the word. And just he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to quote, it is written. He has the mind of God. He is God. He could have just said things. But for us to be an example that He might esteem the Scriptures so that we could see how lofty and how important the Word of God is for us, He quotes from things that were already written. He quotes Moses. Jesus took seriously what the psalmist said in Psalm 119.11 that we read in our call to worship. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. In his humanity, consider this, in his humanity, his human nature, the Lord Jesus took the time to learn what the Bible says. And he committed it to memory. He understood what the Bible said, and he studied it. And he lived by it. He adhered to it no matter what. And this should be our defense against the devil as well. Scripture is so important to our fight against temptation because as we get to know the Word of God more, the Holy Spirit continually works alongside the Word in our hearts to make us more Christ-like, sanctifying us. Not only that, but the Word informs us of what God loves. It tells us what God hates. It shows us more of God's own character, and it tells us what God's promises are to us. And as we're filled with the Word, we learn to see things more clearly. Right, Psalm 19 tells us the word of God is pure, I believe, enlightening the eyes. Regardless, it says the scriptures enlighten our eyes. Meaning that we become more aware of how Satan tempts us and we can see what he's doing. We can see through his temptations to what's really at the core. That's what Jesus did because he knew the word. Don't forsake your Bibles. If you do, then you have no real defense against the temptations of the devil. Read them. And be mastered by them. Third, what does this teach us about Christ? This is my favorite. Jesus is the true and greater Adam. Jesus is the one who enters into an anti-Eden environment so he could be tempted more furiously and under worse conditions than the first Adam so that he could reverse Adam's fall for the people of God. So though tempted by the serpent having his heel bruised, he might crush the serpent's head by not succumbing to temptation. Where Adam failed, the Lord Jesus was victorious. As our perfect federal head. Again, remember that we're still in the introductory part of Mark's gospel. Mark's still introducing us to who Jesus is. And in this narrative, we see that Jesus is the true and fit representative for the people of God and he is not going to fail in his mission to save us. We see in this narrative, he is the undisputed king. Satan has no claim on him. Satan could not buy him. Satan could not beat him. The Lord Jesus is the savior. And he will not be thwarted by any of the devices of the devil. Not only that, but the temptation of Christ and his victory over Satan is meant To be a foretaste of Christ's ultimate victory over Satan won at the cross. In Christ's death and resurrection, the power of sin, Satan, and death was broken. And his people were brought out of bondage to sin. And his people were saved. Christ won in the wilderness. And this is a sign that Jesus was going to win at the cross. And it's a sign even for us today that Jesus will win in the end. He conquers the devil. He's a victorious king who cannot be conquered, but rather he conquers the enemy on behalf of his people. And lastly, what good news is proclaimed to us in Christ's victory over the devil? Christ has won. And the devil is defeated. That's the good news for us here. Christ wins. Satan loses. And because we've been united to Christ by faith, we share in that victory. Praise God. Satan no longer has any dominion over us because Christ crushed him in the wilderness. Now that we're in Christ, sin no longer has dominion over us. We're no longer slaves to sin because Christ has broken the power of sin for us. As Christ overcame Satan's temptation, he's also given us power to overcome our temptations by the Holy Spirit who lives within us. We've been set free from sin. Christian, let me encourage you with this. You don't have to obey Satan when he tells you to sin. Paul in Ephesians 2 says that used to be all that you could do. But you've been set free from that in Christ's victory. The Holy Spirit now dwells in you. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead now lives in us and leads us in godliness since we've been united with Christ by faith. We're free. We've been saved not only from the penalty of sin, but the power of it. Right, So rejoice in that, Christian. This is good news for you. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil, is what John tells us in 1 John 3. And he's done it. The wilderness temptation is proof of that. So we can, in Christ, live lives that are more and more free from sin. We can fight back against the devil and live lives to God. So listen, don't buy that hyper Calvinist nonsense that since we're sinners we can have no victory over sin that's not true we can indeed as we grow more and more in the love and knowledge of the Lord Jesus grow in holiness and say no to Satan and say no to temptation and live righteously to God you're not a slave anymore Christ has set you free And our good news is that even if we do fail And we do give in to temptation And we will at some point Though it is truly sin Something to be avoided Hated and repented of Nevertheless we are still safe We're still safe in the arms of Christ Because he is our second Adam who did not fail He is our representative before God He's our federal head. He's the one by whom we're saved. He is our righteousness. He never sinned. He never fell to temptation, and we are in him. He conquered, so we are saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and its truth. We thank you, God, for giving us. Christ who is our true Adam we thank you that by his obedience we're saved Lord Jesus we thank you for remaining steadfast in the face of temptation so that you might be a fit sacrifice for us that you might give us the victory as you gain victory over the devil God help us to glory in our conquering king And God, help us to take to heart how we ought to fight the devil. Give us a love for your word. Give us a hatred of sin. God, please bless us in the fight. And help us to see that indeed we are no longer slaves to sin or Satan but through Christ we've been set free. We thank you and we praise your holy name forever. Amen.